So my name is Adam, and I am one of the K-12 ministry directors here at Lakeland, and a proud minister to the awesome kids that we just watched. I want to start out this morning by talking a little bit more, actually, about those awesome kids. We're in the fourth week of a teaching series called, How Should We Then Live? And this morning, we're going to take a stab at answering that question with the statement, we should know God's story. And that's why I would like to start by talking a little bit more about our K-12 student ministry at Lakeland. Because knowing God's story is such an important part of what we hope our students here at Lakeland will do, and what we as a staff at Lakeland hope to do with our curriculum. In fact, if I had to sum up my two main goals for all of our students here at Lakeland, personally, as their director, it would be, number one, to grow closer in relationship with God and to seek out opportunities to do so each and every day. And, number two, to better know and understand God's story. Now, the real kicker about goal number one, relational closeness with God, is that all of the other goals that we have as a staff here at Lakeland, including goal number two, uh, knowing God's story, fits in with that and feeds into it and even heightens it. This morning, I hope to show you exactly how this plays out in all of us as God's people. But first, let's talk about quiz station. Why even have a quiz station? Is it merely an opportunity for us to pat our students on the back, which is a good thing, we like to do that, because they have correctly memorized the answers to common Bible and church questions? Or is there something more, something deeper going on here? Hopefully, just by the way that I phrase the question, you can tell that I believe personally that it's the latter. And the reason that I believe it's the latter has everything to do with the importance that we place on our students knowing the story of God. You see, the, knowing the answers to the questions that we ask in Quiz Station, it's not an end in itself. Hopefully, though, knowing those answers will trigger in the minds of our students it will help them recall the weeks and weeks that we've spent discussing the biblical narratives, the stories of God and his people, from which those answers come. At Lakeland, we strongly believe that there are right ways and wrong ways to teach the Bible to students and children. A wrong way would be to moralize the stories of the Bible, to teach the kids that each and every lesson each and every story is a lesson for us in how to live. Or that the Bible is a list of rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts. We believe that even holding up the human characters of the Bible as examples of how we should live falls into the same sort of trap. You see, the stories in the Bible are not about the human characters that grace its pages. The hero of the Bible 
And we try to be so clear with our students about this point. The only hero of the Bible is God. Everyone else who is featured in these Bible stories is just like us. Fallible, fallen people. Just trying to figure out what God is doing and trying to join with him and his mission in the world. Now, this is no small passing remark or minor quibble or a matter of semantics. Understanding this is such a key part of truly following Christ and to having a better posture and a better relationship with God. We have to first realize that it's not about us. We cannot, on our own merits, do good. We cannot, by our own power, make the world right. And we cannot, by our own will or ability or hard work, save ourselves. As the book of Hebrews says, God alone is the author and finisher of our faith. And he is the author and finisher of our salvation. The Bible is about God. Now, if the Bible is about God, our next logical question might be, okay, then what part do we play in all of this? This is just another way, really, of phrasing our question for this series, right? How, then, should we live? And as we've seen over the past few weeks, there are many good answers to this question, answers that give our lives meaning and worth and purpose. In week one, Dan showed us how important it is to surrender our lives to God. In week two, Katie Schultz showed us how important it is to recognize the ways that Jesus is making the world right and to attempt to participate in that ourselves. And last week, Rustin Smith showed us a better way to truly see God, to let God's beliefs about the world, rather than our own, guide the way that we look at it. So this morning, we'll investigate this following question. Why is it important to know God's story? Now, I'm going to start out in my attempt to answer this question by doing something a little bit different. I'm going to ask for your help, okay? You, you maybe didn't know that you were going to help me when you came here. This may be not what you expected to do, but let me explain what your task is together with me. We are going to sing, okay? I already see a couple eyebrows going up. Together, a Bible passage in Hebrew. Hmm, how about that? How do you like that? We're going to sing in Hebrew together. Now, this, oh, can you grab, ushers, those seven people that are trying to get out the door? Bring them, bring them back in here. This is totally easy. You guys are going to love this, I promise. Okay, so let's bring the slide up. Now, you can choose to sing any of those three lines that you wish. Actually, not the third one, because that's too easy. That's in English. Uh, but the second one, I think, will be the most helpful for you because you can see it's kind of the anglicized version of the Hebrew that you can kind of sound out. Now, I'm going to sing for you first. I'll sing the whole thing. I'll sing the whole tune. Um, and then we're going to go through piece by piece, and I'll have you repeat after me, and then we'll sing it all again together. 
So here's how this goes with the tune. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Okay, so let's let's go back and forth. Yeah, you guys you guys picked up on that. A good guttural H. That's I mean that's the that's the most fun part of learning Hebrew or even like German, right? You get to go like that a lot. So you really bring that out. It'll really help. Okay, so let's take the first the first two words. I'll sing it, and then you repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Good. Adonai Eloheinu. Eloheinu. Good. And then Adonai Echad. Adonai Good, nicely done. Okay, let's sing the whole thing now together. Ready? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Nice. Very good. You guys are amazing. I, in fact, that's so good. I, just in case, I brought with me some uh, entrance forms into a local seminary for you guys <laughs> to enroll in an Intro to Biblical Hebrew course. So I'll have those ready in the back after the service. I'm just kidding. That's, I will not do that to you. I've taken that class. You don't want to do that. <laughs> so what we just learned and sang together is called the Shema, okay? And it's a foundational creed of the Jewish faith, and a foundational passage for what we're talking about this morning. The Shema is a central prayer that is often the very first passage of Scripture that a young Jewish child will learn. Now, the six words that we sang together is actually just a part of the Shema. It's the most important part. It's the part that they memorize first and sing first. But it's just a part of it. The entire Shema is actually six entire verses long. And at this point, I want to take a look at the whole thing. Maybe that will help us understand it a little bit better. So we sang Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4. And the whole Shema that's up there on the, on the board now is verses 4 through 9. So let, I'll read those. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's what we sang together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, many Jewish people took 
and perhaps still take these words very literally. They would actually take pieces of paper, write these verses on them, and then tie them onto their wrists. And they would actually hang signs on their door or on their gateposts with the Shema clearly displayed on it. Now, I think that's great. It's a great thing to do. And it's a step toward fulfilling the commandment. But what I think the commandment is really asking people to do is to establish, to embed, to cement these words into their minds and into their hearts. To remember them and to live like they're true. The act of publicly displaying the words serves as a reminder then to the one who sees them. A reminder to remember. Think about that one for a second. That one's going to blow your mind a little bit later when it hits you. A reminder to remember. A reminder to ponder these words of God. But I think we have to take it even a step further than that. Because it's not just these precise words in these verses that were, uh, that were commanded to learn and to remember as God's people. But also what the verses are pointing to. And I'm proposing this morning that the proper context for the Shema, for the, all these commandments, is the entirety of God's story. Thus, when God says, write this on your hand, he's asking us to write his entire story on our hand. Maybe not literally, although that might be a fun thing for the few students to do next week. Write the entire Bible on your hand as small as you can. Hmm. I might do that. No, it's not literally, right? But when God says, write this on your doorpost and on your gate, he is talking about all of it. The complete, unabridged narrative of God. And we take this commandment very seriously here at Lakeland, and especially in our K-12 ministry programming. We believe that if we can help our students to better know and understand the story of God, then we've done something really meaningful and really valuable. Psalm 78 provides us with another clear example of the importance of knowing God's story. Psalm 78, 1 through 7. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Today I'd like to give you three reasons why knowing God's story is such an important and central task for us. Number one, it binds us together as a community. Number two, it helps us to grow closer to God. And number three, 
It gives us true and ultimate hope and joy. Let's start with number one. Knowing God's story binds us together as a community. Now, the importance of story to any particular community and culture can be seen in a negative way in the way that tyrants and dictators tend to suppress story in the cultures they are attempting to dominate. Hitler, of course, would be an infamous and chilling reminder of such a political move. One of the first things he ordered after he took over in Germany was to burn books and magazines and almost anything that had a trace of the culture's history and literature and art. Why? Why would that be such an important act in oppressing a people? It is because the stories of those people can be found in, and remembered and treasured in those books and histories and art. And if someone wants to crush a people's spirit, to destroy their sense of community and belonging, it seems the first and quickest way to go about doing that is to extinguish completely their sense of story. It's impossible not to see the importance of story in our own culture around us today. How often do you overhear, or perhaps engage in yourself, a recap with your friends, uh, the goings-on in the latest episode of The Walking Dead, or 24, or pretty much any popular television show these days. I hear or participate in these conversations all the time, pretty much on a daily basis, I would say myself. Now, as I was looking at a list of the top-rated television shows in 2014, it struck me that all of them, every single one of the top shows, involved intriguing and intricate plot-driven stories. Now, that might be a, well, duh, type of observation for some of you. But for some of us who may remember the show Seinfeld, we have any, any Seinfeld fans in the house? Yeah? Or who grew up watching TGIF classics like Full House? Yeah, Full House. Or Family Matters? Any Urkel fans? Or step-by-step? Step. Not so much step-by-step, step. yeah? Actually, my wife Hannah still loves step-by-step. Step. She will find the most obscure channels and DVR step-by-step step and still watch those old episodes. It's fun fact, true story. But if we consider the popularity of those kind of stories, even 20 to 25 years ago, and compare them to today, I think we do see a difference in today's society. Those older shows were really more character-driven. The situations that the people were in were really merely backdrops for the characters' wacky antics and personalities. But today, it seems, more than ever, we crave as a society 
interesting and suspenseful and convincing storylines and plots. If we recognize the importance of story in everyday culture then, throughout the entire world, how much more important to the people of God should knowing God's story be? Why, when it seems so exciting and pressing for me to personally keep up on the exploits of Walter White on Breaking Bad, or the latest terror fighting that Jack Bauer's doing on 24, is it so difficult for me to be motivated to open my Bible and learn more about the stories I read there? About the history of the biblical judges, or the Israelites conquering Canaan, or the rise of the early church in the book of Acts. I firmly believe that part of our hesitancy to fully dive into reading the Bible is due to our lack of understanding of exactly how it relates to us. We don't immediately think about these kinds of stories as our story, but they are. They most definitely are. As the church, we strongly believe that God is constantly acting within and among us, working to turn a broken, fallen world into a glorious and wonderful kingdom, working to turn a broken, fallen people into a glorious and fulfilled community. This is our story as God's people redemption, restoration, salvation for anyone and everyone who desires it. It's a beautiful story, a gripping story even. And not only do we get to have front row seats to watch the whole thing take place, but we're blessed to be able to participate in this the mission of God. The mission, in all its glory, is inseparable from the story. Knowing the story helps us to understand and embrace the mission. The second reason that knowing God's story is so important is that it actually brings us closer to God. As I said earlier, I consider these two goals, closeness with God and knowing God's story, to be goals 1A and 1B in our student ministry here at Lakeland. They go hand in hand. More specifically, we believe that better knowing and understanding God's story leads to better knowing and understanding God. And that better knowing and understanding God leads to better loving God, to loving him more. Let's take the Old Testament story of Leah from the book of Genesis. Leah is maybe not as well known of a, a character in Genesis as some others. She was the first wife of Jacob, an unfortunate pawn in her father's attempt to get Jacob to work more years of labor for him. Jacob did not want to marry Leah, but her father tricked Jacob into marrying her 
so that he could also marry her younger and more physically attractive sister, Rachel. The story is a heartbreaking one, full of deceit and trickery, and later, full of Leah's sadness and agony in feeling unwanted. In order to try to fulfill her desire to be wanted and needed, Leah turned to her ability to bear children to Jacob, an extremely important function, of course, today, but especially back then. Leah found, after bearing, however, several children to Jacob, that Jacob did not seem to love her or cherish her more because of it. She would have a child in the passages of the story. She would have a child, and she would exclaim, maybe now my husband will love me. But he didn't. She was wrong. And she was left feeling even more sad and depressed because of it. But this is where God's story turns. You see, the story tells us that God did not forget Leah and that God loved her and cherished her. And after having a son named Judah, Leah exclaimed, This time, I will praise the Lord. Finally, Leah felt loved and needed, and she realized that it is God's love that matters most. Now, this is a great story. It tells us a lot about the innate human ability, I think, to use and hurt each other, yes, but also, more importantly, it tells us a lot about God's ability to redeem and overcome that. And maybe even more importantly, it tells us about God's desire to do it. God wants to comfort and love his children. And it's this type of story, seeing God's redeeming love at work, that brings me personally to true worship. God no longer becomes this cold, impersonal, old man kind of figure who lives up in the sky. But God becomes the ultimate lover of my soul. The one who desires more than any human being ever could to bring true hope and love and peace and joy into my life. And doesn't seeing and realizing that lead us all to feel more love and worship for God, even right now in this very moment. It certainly does for me. This leads us straight into our third reason that it's so important to know God's story. It brings us true and ultimate hope and joy. Now, there's something very interesting that happens to me when I go to watch a movie in a theater. And I'm going to explain to you what that is, what it is that happens to me. And I want you guys to either tell me, yeah, that happens to us too, or maybe you'll say, yeah, you're really weird. First service, I, don't, I hate to give this away, but first service thought maybe I was just a little weird. But maybe you guys will have more empathy with me. Maybe you're, maybe you're with me in this. So, there's something very interesting that happens. Um, when I watch a certain kind of movie, and it is typically a certain kind of movie, it's that action-packed, 
epic hero sort of movie. When I watch one of those, I tend to walk out of the theater picturing myself as the main character in the movie I just watched. It's kind of a subconscious thing, I think. My mind naturally just wants to be a part of the story that I just saw. It wants to picture myself and what it would be like to be a part of that story. What would I do? How would I react? Who would I be? Picturing myself within these stories actually does tend to bring me a sort of sense of hope, an underlying belief that I too could become a hero and save the day. Over time, of course, that feeling fades. Usually about by the time I get home, driving home from the theater, I'm no longer thinking about it. The great storyteller and author of the Lord of the Rings series, I know we've got some Lord of the Rings fans in the house. This is Lakeland, come on. J.R.R. Tolkien once said, if a story is well told, it will create a secondary belief in the underlying tale. Now, what he means by secondary belief is that somewhere deep inside us, even if we know that what we just watched was fictional, we believe it to be the reflection of something possible, even something real in the world. I can think of so many examples of movies or books where after I've gotten I've finished watching or reading it, my mind is, is just saying, wow, I just want that to be true, right? Even if I know it's not, I wish it were. That's really what's going on in my mind, right, when I'm being weird and picturing myself as the lead character in the movies that I watch. Something within me is resonating with the story, wanting it to be true. And I'm convinced that we as humans, we crave a certain kind of story. A story that shows us a love that is eternal. A story where good triumphs over evil. A story where victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. A story that depicts a heroism that rescues life headed for certain death. Now some modern people might say, well, life is just not like that. And even if those are good stories, if they're not true, then they're meaningless. But these deep human longings that we, that we have inside us, we cannot simply dismiss as meaningless. And these longings within us point us toward something that is beautiful and something that is true. Because there is a story like this in the world. And that story is God's. A story that we can access anytime we'd like in the Bible. God's story is the kind of story that we long for. Eternal love? Check. Good triumphing over evil? Check. Victory being snatched from the jaws of defeat? Life being rescued from certain death. Check. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment 
of God's story. God himself is the one who entered into the fallen world to redeem it from the inside out. God is the one who took on the forces of sin and evil in order to rescue his true love, all of us, from certain death. And just when it looked like the hero of the story may be defeated by being captured and killed on a cross, something amazing happened. And the hero of the story turned out to be victorious after all. For the resurrection shows us that the cross is not a defeat, but a triumph. And Jesus is not just one more beautiful story that we savor for a moment but then completely forget about when we re-enter reality. Jesus Christ is the underlying truth that all good stories point to. The reason our hearts and our inner beings long for that certain type of story that we so much want to be true is that it is true. We recognize the true beauty in the world that these stories remind us about. And in doing so, we gain true hope and joy. Not only in the way we wish the world was, but in the way the world truly is, the way the world can be, and the way the world will be. In Exodus chapter 3, the great prophet Moses personally meets God. Now, God appears to Moses as a burning bush. That's kind of scary. And Moses is dismayed and afraid and frightened beyond belief. I think we could probably sympathize with, with his feelings on that one. And God tells Moses, I need you to go back into Egypt and free the Israelite people from the terrible and painful slavery that they're experiencing there. Moses says, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. That sounds awesome, God. But when I go to Egypt... And I say, hey, I'm here to free all the slaves. And the people say, who sent you to do that? On whose authority? What am I going to tell them? What Moses is really asking here, right, is, who are you, God? And God identifies himself in a very interesting way. In verse 6, he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In this intense moment with Moses, startled, confused, and unsure of himself and what he's really supposed to be doing, what is God trying to say to Moses with those words? I think the answer is the same answer that he's trying to tell all of us every time that we're confused and unsure of ourselves. And it's the same answer that we find, hopefully, that we should find anytime we encounter God's story. I am with you, God says. I have always been with you. I was with your ancestor Abraham when he left his family and his home in search of a promised land. I was with Isaac when he was about to be sacrificed on Mount Horeb. I was with Jacob 
when he wrestled a stranger one night and left with a limp, and when his favorite son came up missing and his family was left without food and water during a great famine. I was with Leah when she felt unwanted and unloved. And I was with all of you when I came to earth as a baby, was captured and killed on a cross, and then was raised to life in order to make the whole world right again. This is the hope of the world, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, remembering this, believing it, and living lives that shows others that it's true, this is the way that we can experience true hope and joy in this life. So, how should we then live? We, as the people of God, should continue to delve into God's story. For those with children in student ministry here at Lakeland, I can assure you that your kids will continue to do this, and they'll continue to do it each and every week if we have anything to say about it. But it's important that we all, together, continue to do this as well, as a community, as a family, and that we understand that the ultimate fulfillment of all of it, not just the stories in the Bible, but every good story that we've ever heard is Jesus Christ. If you'd stand with me, I'd like to say a blessing, and then you, you'll be dismissed. May you all go out from here full of hope and joy in our hero and our Savior. And may you embrace God's story and know it deeply and intimately for yourselves. And may that knowledge lead you to worship and love the God who loves us. Amen. You may go in peace.